Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, one 408 7669 Gerard Baker will join us at the bottom of the hour. You know him for the Wall Street Journal and host of the Wall Street Journal at large. Uh, we'll also be taking your calls. I uh, hope you had a fantastic Father's Day, should it apply. Uh, Juneteenth is today. Many of you are off today commemorating freedom for African-Americans. It finally, word finally got to Texas a few months late. And uh, that's why this moment as of last year becomes a national holiday, I believe. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Over 100,000 Americans died from fentanyl overdoses that come across that border. This is, this is unprecedented, the amount of deaths and the amount of crossings in just a year and a half under this president. And, I, and, I, and it's because they haven't done a single thing. they got no enforcement strategy. There's no consequence, no deterrence. It's uh, totally true, Tom Holman. Biggest story this administration won't talk about, but could indeed cost them more than any other policy bungle. And I'm talking about the border. We will bring you the numbers and how Latinos might force the Dems to build a wall. Number two. This is a really dangerous game. You are seeing Democratic interest groups getting involved in Republican primaries, trying to secretly, below the radar, support the extreme candidate. They figure if, if you nominate him, you know what, we can beat him. Well, well guess what? You yeah. might not. Dark clouds gather for the Dems as the 2022 midterms loom and a mad scramble for both Republicans and Democrats to prevent another 2020 presidential rematch between Trump and Biden. Where do you stand? Number one. Talking to a leading Democratic lawmaker right now, there was a rare in-person presentation uh, earlier this week where some of the White House officials went to the Hill. It was not not well received. They said there was no strategy, no plan. This lawmaker said to me, we need to see the president be decisive. That was Peter Alexander of NBC, not Fox, not Newsmax or anything else. Recession looms, inflation soars, gas prices, historic highs, flight delays by the thousands, and Biden blames everyone but himself. And his surrogates follow his lead while his poll numbers fall and flail. Just days after falling up the stairs at Air Force One and now falling off a stop bike over the weekend. So symbolic of everything. He's failed. And all his policies have failed. What scares me is with the economy in free fall right now, with inflation out of control, yes, compared uh, above everybody, I believe, except the United Kingdom. The president's party, Senator Schumer's working with Senator Manchin to do a mini build back better. Stunning. That would up tax rates. That would up corporate tax rates. As if revenue is the problem. 
Revenue is not the problem. The supply chain is the problem. You should be cutting taxes. And the last thing you want to do is hurt the most productive people in our country. And if you don't, and the fact is that Trump tax cuts that brought us this reform and a surging economy were not a cut for the rich. They lost one point off the top bracket. That is it. So let me give you an idea of what you're thinking. 32% of you are optimistic about the economy. Who's that 32%? 65% pessimistic. 80% of you say it's uh, uh, the economy is fair or poor. That's telling the story. 88% grocery prices, utility costs are the big deal. Uh, so that is the story. Despite inflation, we are spending. A combination of the pandemic and deep pockets, uh, evidently, and a $6 trillion in stimulus have us spending money, right? We have two to $2.3 tri- uh, in excess savings. That's good news. But it's money we don't have that are now in our pockets. Overall, people are going to start pulling back when they realize that's still not coming. For the most part, the average family is spending an extra $350 a month. But that is why the administration sent out their surrogates to tell us how much better it is than we think. Cut one. Brian Lowering prescription drug costs is one piece. Lowering utility costs by providing tax incentives for energy is another piece. But equally important, lowering the federal deficit Mm. by enacting long overdue tax reform. If we can do a package like that, we can move forward in the near future. It will not only help in lowering prices, but it will send a signal to the markets and the global economy. The United States is really deadly serious about taking on this. Hiking taxes isn't going to change the price of milk. That was Margaret Brennan challenging Brian Deese. Do you know what they're saying? Hiking taxes. That's the problem. Revenue is not the problem. What it is, the supply chain is the issue. And they're going to start lifting, you watch, the Trump era tariffs on China. What a terrible foreign policy and what a horrible message that is in a time in which we've got to act tough. And you just watch. It'll come by. It'll be a Friday, maybe the, uh, Friday around 4 o'clock. It'll come down. And then the, the debate will be... Uh, over on the Sunday shows, and they think it'll be over after that. So the problem is that they have to get their socialistic agenda through. And I'm not talking about socialism. I'm talking about you talk about child care. We can't afford to pay everyone's babysitter. You talk about free preschool. We can't afford to pay everyone's preschool. That's not the math. Equal opportunity, not equal outcomes. There's got to be, for the people who have less, there's a ton out there. This is not the time to increase socialistic obligations. So Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation asked him about, you know, what's going on and where is the, where's your answer? Is your answer really upping taxes? Cut three. You just have to look around the world today to recognize that the two principal drivers of inflation are the pandemic and Putin. We're seeing this everywhere. It is a global phenomenon. As I mentioned, in the U.K., inflation's hit 9%. Right. In Europe, it's over. Those are the things you can't control. I'm talking about the things you can. Absolutely. So how do you win that credibility back? Well, if we look at the things that we can control, we win credibility by taking action. This president is acting. How? Blaming? Vladimir, by the way, if Vladimir Putin... There's not, and Sandra Smith was telling me this on Friday. She's, uh, she's got this business background. There's no difference. We have the same amount of oil on the world market as we had before the war. Number two, you never tell your enemy that you're hurting them. Why would you do that unless you're trying to get more funds or rally the public? But why are you, you're rallying Vladimir Putin by giving him all this credit for affecting the world economy. 
What they're doing in Germany is they're firing up coal plants again. What they're doing in Germany and in the rest of Europe is they're forgetting about the solar panels and wind because people don't want to look at them, not in my backyard stuff, and it's too haphazard to count on. So they're finding other ways to get natural gas in because they don't want to give money to this horrible regime and this brutal despot that is killing innocent people, especially children. So you cannot say that they're doing everything possible. And you know who's not saying it? Larry Summers. He talked about the possibility of a recession. Why is that important? He was Treasury Secretary to Obama and advisor to President Obama, too. He talked about laying it out on the line with last year's $2 trillion rescue package that we didn't need. He says, you don't need this. We're already recovering. We don't need $2 trillion more in the system. But everyone got stimulus checks. Everyone got their tax breaks. Everyone got their extra money. And the president said, look at what I can do with all the momentum I got. Cut five. Nothing is certain, and all economic forecasts have uncertainty. My best guess is that a recession is ahead. I base that on the fact that we haven't had a situation like the present with inflation above four and unemployment below four without a recession following within a year or two. Okay. That's what he's doing, basic math. So let me move forward and talk about what the administration wants to do. They want to put Joe Biden out there more. You saw him over the weekend fall off his bike. You see him extemporaneously not being able to handle Jimmy Kimmel questions or finish a thought. Joe's out there more. Jill, you're happy now? Or your daughter Ashley, or you want you say that that's what you want? You want to see your dad out there more? Good luck with that. So then behind closed doors, they wanted to get some leadership lawmakers out there to understand what the plan is and to know how to message that this is a tough time, but things are going to get better. And look at all the good things that are happening. So Peter Alexander of Unmeet the Press said this about his reporting about what happened when lawmakers, Democratic lawmakers, went to the White House to get their message. Cut 10. But what struck me in the conversations I've had over the last several days is the real frustrations, Chuck, among some Democrats. Talking to a leading Democratic lawmaker right now, there was a rare in-person presentation uh, earlier this week where some of the White House officials went to the Hill. It was not not well received. They said there was no strategy, no plan. This lawmaker said to me, we need to see the president be decisive. And they really feel like there's decision paralysis on some of these key issues like tariffs and on student loans. Is that amazing to you? This is what leaked out of – by the way, it's scary. I'm not happy about this. You know, if it was October 15th, I'd be like, okay, that's uh, death for Democrats, death for uh, their political fortunes. But I'm I'm a little bit too worried in June about this because to think that they have no message and don't understand what's going on. you got a president falling up the stairs and off a standing bicycle, symbolic of what's going on. Kamala Harris totally has left the border totally naked. She is clueless about anything. You have Brian Deese and you have Secretary of Treasury Yellen, who couldn't be more political, along with the attorney general. And Larry Summers and other Democrats speaking up saying, guys, get your act together because you're destroying the entire party. Let's fast forward and talk about messaging and talk about where this party is. And Democrats are so desperate in order to avoid a shellacking. Obama style, where they lost 63 House seats and the Senate. They didn't lose the Senate, but they could lose the Senate this time. That This is the Democrats' plan. Don't go ahead and beat them on issues. Don't say I got better 
candidates. Primary, the Republicans are the most extreme. Give them money and let them win the primary. Listen to this cynical strategy, cut 11. This is a really dangerous game. You are seeing Democratic interest groups getting involved in Republican primaries, trying to secretly below the radar, uh, with lots of money spent on advertising, support the extreme candidate uh, in hopes of, find, of, of nominate, Republicans nominate someone. Why isn't that a good strategy? Well, well, let's take one example. In Colorado, they are, uh, there's a group called Democratic Colorado. They have already dumped more than $2 million into a Republican primary there in support of a guy named Ron Hanks. This is a guy who bragged about being part of the group that marched on the Capitol. Uh, He is somebody that says the election was stolen. Uh, He is somebody that says the election was stolen in Colorado, which is not even one of the the frontline states. Uh, And he wants to ban mail-in voting. Uh, He wants to ban all voting except for voting on Election Day in person. And he is lockstep with the most extreme views on the election. So... They, want, they figure if, if you nominate him, you know what, we can beat him. Well, well guess what? You yeah. might not. Right. So you may be sending to Washington uh, candidates that are lockstep with the big line. It's so desperate and dumb. Can you imagine having millions of dollars and you're at home and you're saying, well, I'm a Democrat. I'm going to mail $25 away. You know, I only make the fixed income. I make 250 a week. But I care about this country. I'm going to mail 25 And you find out it's financing with people that they label extremes on the right. So Chris Christie's hearing this. He's on the same panel and said this is the way it is. Cut 12. This shows that the Democrats have no message that they think can win when they're playing around in Republican primaries and hoping to nominate the most extreme and what they consider the most vulnerable candidates. And it's the most cynical type of politics you can possibly engage in. Like, okay, I can't win on my own steam. I've got $5 gas. I've got runaway crime, bad inflation in the supermarket. I don't have a message that can win in a base election. So therefore, I've got to go and get involved in the other guys to try to get the worst candidate. And John's right. Here's the risk of that. You do that and that person wins in a wave election, you are further, further polarizing Washington, D.C., and that shouldn't be what either party is looking to try to do by engaging in, 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 in mischief in the other one. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I know I should. I asked Newt Gingrich this this morning. He says, well, politics isn't easy. You know, it's, it's tough stuff, and they, you got to win any way you can. I'm thinking to myself, really? If the best way for me to win is try to make sure the other guy is terrible because I am awful, that is pathetic. At one point, recalibrate and say, we got to go the Joe Manchin way. We have to go the centrist way, the Harold Ford way, or else we have no shot. we got to go out and condemn some of the things that are happening that are destroying the oil and gas industry because it affects all of us, not people just to work in oil and gas. And we're seeing it in other places. You come out of this pirate climate, uh, this pirate climate deal, and you come out and you start doing the things that they want you to do to so-called save the planet, and you destroy your country's economy. And guess what? The people like China, Iran, and Russia ignore all of it, pump oil and gas, and now have a stranglehold on our economy because they don't care about polluting the country. And we don't have the infrastructure for electric. We don't have the cars for electric. We don't have the cars for the average everyday American family. We don't have the chips, the replacement batteries, the way to throw out some of the lithium and things that are involved in electric vehicles that are mostly powered by generators that are coal powered. So all this idiocy has sacrificed our national security. And when Democrats say, yeah, we're responsible, 
So we're going to pro- we're going to try to promote Republicans that are so extreme you'll have to vote for us. That's pathetic and scary. I want to see what you have to say about that. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine, and then get a, a real expert, Gerard Baker, to weigh in on where our economy's heading. Can we avoid a recession while the market drops precipitously? And that's not just for the rich; it's for the people with four hundred one k's or pension plans. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Holding our politicians' feet to the fire, no matter who they are. That's Brian Kilmeade. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. If Biden does step down or say he's going to step down, then the Democrats have, I mean, we've all noticed this, a problem. Like, but who? Right. And he mentioned, who is there, Bill Clinton, who's going to come along? And I thought, okay, well, Clinton and Obama, obviously the last two successful Democrats. Is, is there a Bill Clinton or... Barack Obama out there, or is such a broadly centrist Democrat no longer even really possible? And that's what Bill Moore's speculating on, is a centrist Democrat. I always thought that he'd be someone rejecting a centrist Democrat. It's kind of surprising to say, is there someone to come along and do it? And remember, Bill Clinton wasn't moderate until he became a, a loser in the midterm elections. And then he got together with Dick Morris and decided to Compromise on welfare reform and take a lot of Republican policies, put them into play. And he ends up with a zero deficit because he said, yeah, I'll cut taxes if we can up this certain area of spending. And they started doing that. And next thing you know, we had a zero uh, a zero deficit and we were really in good shape. We also had a peace dividend. We were dealing uh, with a friendly Russia and we had an up and coming China that we did not yet identify as trouble. Now we have a much different story. You've got a crazy man running Russia who will stop at nothing, bloodthirsty. And then you have China who's doing everything they can to upend us as the number one world power, economic and military power. And you've got an inept president that is losing ground even in our own hemisphere, let alone losing ground around the world. You know, over the weekend, something that you're probably not going to hear a lot about or think much about, but I think we will eventually. You know, we lost Bolivia. You know, we lost Venezuela. We have lost Cuba since the 1950s. Now, did we just lose Colombia after all the work we did to get rid of their guerrilla forces in those mountains? It looks like they just elected some leftist socialist in Colombia. And when Hugo Chavez got elected in Venezuela, we said, well, we could probably still deal with him. And they said, we still want to deal with the West. And they gradually took all the rights away, sort of consolidating power, federalizing major companies. Next thing you know, the West was out. And uh, China, Iran, and Russia were in. Is that where Colombia is heading? We have to do something about that. 
Love the president to mention that. That would help the country. Gerard Baker coming up next. Editor at large with the Wall Street Journal. Don't move. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Nothing is certain, and all economic forecasts have uncertainty. My best guess is that a recession is ahead. I base that on the fact that we haven't had a situation like the present with inflation above four and unemployment below four without a recession following within a year or two. That is Larry Summers weighing in. No one else is leveling with us. Why not go to somebody, a Democrat that's outside the White House? Gerard Baker joins us now, editor-at-large of the Wall Street Journal and host of the Wall Street Journal report on, on Fridays. But I'll just give you this. Uh, as I welcome you, uh, Gerard, in your world, the Wall Street Journal did a survey, and they reported that 44 percent of economists expect a recession in the next year and 60 percent of CEOs. So does that give you an indication of where we're heading? Yeah, very much, Brian. Thank, again, thanks for having me on. Yes, absolutely. In fact, if anything, that 44% number is probably likely to increase in the next few months. We do that. Uh, my colleagues on the news side of the journal do that uh, every uh, every few months or so. Um, you know, you heard what Larry Summers said. It's exactly right. The economy is already in a relatively weak condition. We saw negative growth in the first quarter of this year. The latest estimate by the Atlanta Fed, which sort of calculates where the economy is in real time, is that the economy in the second quarter is flat. So we're already pretty weak. And now we're getting hit with these interest rate increases. We're getting hit with a big interest rate increase by the Fed. Uh, bond yields have risen dramatically in the course of the last couple of months. Stock markets declined. All of those are, are, are negative factors. And on top of that, you've still got these disruptions in the world economy. You've got supply chain problems. You've got uh, the war in Ukraine. So, yeah, I think the probability is, despite the happy talk from the administration, despite the kind of wishful thinking. Yeah, and by the way, the Fed is still doing a lot of wishful thinking, even as it raises rates. I think Larry Summers is right. I think the probability is that we are we may already be in a recession, but the very strong probability is that we're going to be we're going to be in a recession later this year. And what's, what's astounding is now we all know that, you know, the president is not uh, the Tuscanini of the world economy. We know he doesn't have all the strings, but what he does in blaming is astounding. Listen to what his energy secretary said, blaming the, the energy and gas industry, which he pledged to destroy. Cut eight. The president is prepared to use all of his authorities to do what he can to increase supply. Oil is traded on a global market. This issue of supply is hitting every country around the world. Every country is paying high prices for gas. We have to, all countries, increase supply in this moment because demand is also increasing, especially as countries like China will be coming out of COVID. So you've got an upward pressure on prices. So the president is doing everything he can within his power, including releasing a million barrels per day at the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We've got to replace the, the barrels of oil that Russia 
used to export around the world and that now is not available because of the war. Well, that was Secretary of Energy Granholm, who you know hates oil and gas, and you know the permits, the the leases that they have, she's not issuing permits for those leases, but yet they're going to vilify these people. What's the reality? They, I mean, they I mean, they take us for fools, Brian, and I, and no, nobody's you know nobody's buying it. This is to, to me. I mean, it shows not just the dishonesty um, and the you know the misdirection of this administration, but in a funny way, the kind of strange stupidity of them because i don't think do they really think that people buy this they spent as you exactly as you said they came into office telling us they've spent democrats have spent have spent the last several years telling us boasting you really john Kerry boasted about shutting down the oil and gas industry in the in the country and about how we're all gonna have to shit you know remember remember very early on in the administration john Kerry talking about you know how oh we're going to create all these wonderful new green jobs as we basically destroyed jobs in the fossil fuel industry because they told us the fossil fuel industry was destroying the planet and here we are not even 2 years into this administration them you know chastising the oil and gas industry for not producing more oil and gas it i mean and again nobody nobody buys this nobody thinks this is there's any consistency here everybody and by the way, it's not just the, the domestic oil and gas industry. Joe Biden, as you know, is going to Saudi Arabia in July. Well, another country, a country that he has that he has turned his back on for the first year of his administration. Look, what happened with Jamal Khashoggi was a horrible, disgusting event. We all understand that. But Saudi Arabia is not only enormously important for oil, it's enormously strategically important in the Middle East. But, but uh, Joe Biden said, no, 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 I'm going to treat you like a pariah. You're a terrible country. A year later... He's basically going there on his knees to beg them to produce more oil and gas. So somehow this idea that oil and gas production is destroying the planet has been transformed in a year into oil and gas companies are not doing enough to help save the world. It's, um, you know, and again, it's just the it's the it's the arrogance that they show right. to make people think that they actually don't understand what's going on. So this is, uh, and I've been saying this for the longest time, where's the pushback on oil and gas? I mean, these are some of the most effective uh, CEOs and executives in the country. I know they've been vilified for a while, but they finally did put a letter together. This is from the head of the uh, American Petroleum Institute. It says this, your administration has restricted oil and natural gas development, canceled energy infrastructure projects, imposed regulatory uncertainty, and proposed new tax increases on American and gas producers uh, competing globally. That's why there is less refined, uh, refined oil. And right now, globally, there's 730 fewer barrels a day in 20, from 2021. So they lost a ton of money during the pandemic. Did anyone cry for an oil and gas bailout? Now that they're making money because they've been pared down and investment's been told to stay away, they're told they're the bad guys. Now, let me ask you this, Gerard. They said that we're going to invoke the Defense Production Act. Okay. How do you do that? Are you going to physically uh, take prisoners in jumpsuits and make them refine oil? Because we're at maximum capacity now. Right, because we've had we've had so we, we you know the, again the administration has been um, you know, opposed to to drilling and this old this argument about the leases is ridiculous. They claim that they've granted these leases, but a lot of these leases you know the, the exploration has to be done. All kinds of other things have to be done. Look, the oil industry is a heavily regulated industry. They have to be a little careful about what they you know about about getting on the wrong side of government. I mean, they're basically on the wrong side of government because this government is hostile to them. So I can understand their kind of reluctance to get to enter the fray. But you're absolutely right. It's good to see that letter that they have finally pointed out the contradictions, the inconsistencies, and frankly, the hypocrisy there. No, of course, they're not going to be able to force. I mean, 
These things, by the way, take time. It takes time to ramp up production. Even refining takes takes time. As you say, the actual we're 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 at capacity or over capacity as it is. There just isn't the availability to do that. And this all just reflects again this administration's hypocrisy and it's and frankly it's ineptitude that is in it, it's just it, 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 it you know we should have seen these things coming we should have seen that these things that there were going to be super shortages we okay we didn't necessarily know that vladimir putin was going to invade ukraine and put oil prices up in uh, the, uh, the additional amount but we should have known that in a world as the that was recovering that was that was recovering let's let's not forget that that was recovering from the coronavirus uh, pandemic yeah. that there was going to be significant pressure on oil uh, on, on energy and, and let's get that energy out of the ground and and into uh, consumers and production and and businesses um um you know needs where where they have it and instead they didn't do that and it reflects again Brian this whole look when when Joe Biden took office interest rates were low american savings were high the stock market was at a record the economy was growing strongly um, it was recovering very, very smartly. They came in and with this regulatory, regulatory agenda to shut down energy. They came in with this massive spending plan, which which poured fuel on the inflationary fire with that huge stimulus. They came in straight away, and less than a, a less than a year and a half after exactly a year and a half. I know less than a year and a half after they came into office, that all of that situation that Joe Biden inherited has been squandered. And it is, you know, people can see this. They're not stupid. Uh, Gerard Baker, our guest, editor of the, uh, of law, uh, at large of the Wall Street Journal and also host of Wall Street Journal at large on Fridays at 7.30. Gerard, I'm, I'm looking over in Europe, right? And you know their inflation outside the U.K. is less than ours. And now they have a situation where the Russians are cutting back on their natural gas. You know what the Germans are doing? They're firing up their coal plants again. Yeah. And they're starting to go elsewhere to fill up their natural gas. They got until December. to They were at 54%. They got to get up to 90% by December. I bet you they can do it. So they're looking elsewhere. Russia's trying to strangle us. But long term, it's Russia the one who's going to be losing these customers. And it's Russia the one that's going to be hurt. In the short term, we got to do this. But what they're finding is nobody in Europe wants to see these windmills and these solar valleys, these panels uh, taking over their, their landscapes. So this Paris climate change thing isn't something that Donald Trump just didn't like. It's proved thoroughly ineffective. And the people that are polluting the world, the China, Iran, and Russia, they're ignoring it. Yeah. It's been, look, it's been an article of religious faith in Europe and on the left in this country for the last 10 years that the world is facing climate catastrophe, this extreme extremism that you've seen, this sort of veneration of this, you know, 17, 18 year old schoolgirl, Greta Thunberg. I mean, it's a, you know, when, when people look back on this period, Brian, I think. They will ask, you know, kind of what were we doing? I mean, what were we smoking? How did we get into the situation where we were allowing a 17 year old schoolgirl from Sweden to dictate the way countries uh, conduct not just their energy policy, Brian, but their entire strategic policy? This is why partly why we are, you know, that Europe is in this Europe is seeing this war with Ukraine uh, between Ukraine and Russia right now is because essentially Russia has been so strong because it maintained its energy production. It didn't embrace this green agenda and the rest of Europe became completely dependent on Russian oil because because it was pursuing this manic, stupid, insane, um, you know, self-sacrificing energy policy. So that's so. So it's not just that we were, you know, that, that all these countries were pursuing economic energy policies that made no sense. It, it made them economic, uh, political hostages to a country like Russia. So. Yeah, so they have all 
found themselves now, oh my goodness, what a surprise. We, no one told us this four months later. No one told us we were going to face an energy crisis when, when Russia you know, did, you know, decided to invade and then we you know, imposed sanctions and they trying to cut the natural gas off. It is, you know, they are going to have to scramble. They are scrambling to, re, re, you know, to, to, to restart their energy industry. Look, the, 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 the Germans in particular basically tried to shut down their entire, they made these impossible goals to achieve very, very low carbon emission um, uh, uh, targets uh, over a very short period of time. They basically shut down huge amounts of their fossil fuel industries, went for these, as you say, these craters, wind farms. By the way, not only are they eyesores and ugly and they occupy huge quantities of land, also we know they're not that productive. They, you know, they don't, they don't, they're, aren't, they're you know, they, they're very dependent on weather conditions. You don't always get the right conditions and you have to, the storage of that energy is extremely difficult. So yeah, we have pursued, thanks to this, manic dogma of the progressive left that has treated climate change like a religious belief for the last yeah. 10 years that religious belief has left us where we are today which is record high energy costs uh, high inflation and a recession which we're about to tumble into it's just that there's no practicality uh, among it and like you said it's an insult to keep saying oil and gas are the problem refinery should pick up the pace just like it's saying i'm going to have a conference call with the airlines because they're well, everything is delayed we've got thousands of flights have been canceled excuse me uh you're the one with the man the mandates they came down this stuff was all foreseeable you never met with them before now that there's a uh there's a problem now you're trying to get ahead of the problem, and you have no idea what it is. It's as if they're, they don't care because if people don't fly, they're not polluting the air. They don't care. They'll pretend as if they're upset, but they actually feel good they are on the course to uh, zero emissions. But it's not helping us in the practical world, and our enemies are laughing at us. And, Gerard, uh, lastly, what about the strategy that, this administrate, that the Democratic Party is using to try to spend money to promote in the primaries extreme Republican candidates in order to help them match up in their matchups against Democrats because they know their message has been so bad. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's you know it's very cynical. I mean, it has been done. It has been done in the past. Um, you know, I think the only thing to say, Brian, and the risk for them is it could come back to bite them because look, we know. Okay, we all we're all familiar with those. Uh, midterm elections that happened in 2010 or 2014 when the Republicans did nominate some, let's be honest, sort of kind of slightly kind of off the planet um, candidates in certain places who said some very silly things and ended up losing Senate seats that they should have won. But, you know, this was also, remember, the Democrats' cunning plan in 2016, when they wanted Donald Trump to be the Republican nominee, because they thought he would be, he was, he was, he was, he was, he would be beatable. That they thought he would, it was, he would never, he would never win. So I think they have to. I think one, it's cynical, and you know, I think people can see through that. But two, it's also very risky because you know some of these candidates, they may end up, uh, you know, the, the, look, the mood in the country is so hostile to the Democratic Party right now. The the, the the latest polling we're seeing, there was a Fox poll last week showing, you know, you know. Biden's numbers at record lows. He's in the high 30s in many of the polls, lowest you know a presidential number we've seen in 50 years. The generic ballot in November is pointing very strongly towards big, big gains for Republicans. I think that's going to overwhelm these kind of you know tactical, cynical moves by Democrats to try and you know maybe pick off a few Republican seats here and there. And again, it may even backfire. 
Lastly, don't you think it's it's a bad strategical move to keep saying that Vladimir Putin's hurting our economy? That's going to do nothing except to want to dig in more with this war and sell it to his own people. If that is indeed the case, that should be something that's maybe leaked out to the administration that might be deniable in a report by some official in order to tell everybody how bad our economy is and look to blame. They're saying Vladimir Putin did this. That's exactly what he needs. Yeah, it's a very good point, actually, Brian. And you know what the other thing is? You remember all those sanctions that we imposed that were going to cripple the Russian economy? The Russian ruble, which fell immediately after the invasion of Ukraine, is now kind of, you know, is way back up where it was because of energy prices and the, and the fact that Russia is still able to export most of its most of its energy. The Russian economy is doing incredibly well. Uh, the Russian energy sector is doing extremely well. So, yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. Kind of, you know, bigging up the, the, the Russian role in the world by saying, oh, my God, isn't it terrible? The Russians have destroyed our economy. That doesn't I mean. People, first of all, understand that, that domestically that the, the Biden administration has made its own problems. But strategically, yeah, it does. It gives the impression to to, to Americans and people around the world that Russia is an enormously powerful country. We shouldn't be doing that. I agree with you. And, they, and they're not. Uh, and they've done some horrible things. And I just hope we don't lose interest because it's it's this is a fight worth having. Uh, Gerard, thanks so much. Gerard Baker, Wall Street Journal. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Great pleasure. You got it. one 408 Back with your calls in just a moment. You're listening to the Monday edition of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. What can you tell us about the Hispanic voter and uh, what you're expecting in terms of votes come November? Well, the main issue is inflation. It's the cost of living. Everyone is extremely pissed off, angry at the Biden administration because of the increase of gasoline, of groceries, of, of medication. That is hurting them tremendously, not only here in South Texas, but in the entire country. And of course, the border crisis is something that we see here right behind our backyards. It's not something that we need to be told by the news. It's something that we're seeing here every single day. And the Biden administration's policies are only hurting immigrants, hurting the American people. And because of him, we had an we have an increase of child trafficking in this country. And this is all on the Biden administration. That's Myra Flores. She flipped a seat in a special election that's going to be redistrict. But Myra Flores, a Republican, it's been a hundred year Democratic seat. And what she's saying is his Hispanics, number one, don't generalize. Number two, don't think because other Hispanics are coming in, we're happy about it. And look at what Bill Malusian is reporting. Now, we know about the, the people that got in and get apprehended or turned themselves in. Do you know the ghetto gotaways since April 1st? 445,837. Those are the people that we could see got away. In Tucson, 141,000. In Del Rio, 126,000. Uh, the other numbers are extremely high. Uh, San Diego, 36,000. These are all, uh, the Rio Grande Valley is 32,791. Del Rio is 126. So these are all areas in which it's just been flooded. A lot of them are family members who are Border Patrol agents and know how badly they've been treated, overwhelmed they are, and how they're just glorified babysitters now. That's not in our best interest. We need a president that's going to say, do not come, and you're going to be tossed out if you do. And then worry about letting other people sue them if that happens, because other people won't bother sending their unaccompanied minors here. Brian Kilmeade Show. Live. 
from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Thanks so much Kilmeade. for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope you had a great Father's Day weekend. Should it apply? And Juneteenth is here. Many of you are off. Look at that important time in American history. Uh, and I'm glad we're signifying it and symbolizing it and taking time to think about it. So I think it's awesome. That, to me, is not nothing to do with wokeness. Uh, what do you think? one 408 7669 We come to you from Midtown Manhattan. I come to you from Long Island. And then I work here. And at the bottom of the hour, Doug Collins will be with us, you know, with the former ranking member of the U.S. House Judiciary Committee. I'm going to have him weigh in on Herschel Walker. Comes out and defending the fact that he has some kids out of wedlock. He said, I've always acknowledged them. Everyone acted like it was a big scandal. What does it mean? And a race that's certainly going to be separated by just one point or two. And Michael Goodwin standing by the New York Post. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Over 100,000 Americans died from fentanyl overdoses that come across that border. This is, this is unprecedented, the amount of deaths and the amount of crossings in just a year and a half under this president. And, I, and, I, and it's because they haven't done a single thing. they got no enforcement strategy. There's no consequence, no deterrence. And believe me, that was the calm part of Tom Holman's testimony interview over the weekend. He's beside himself, as are you, I am sure. The biggest story this administration won't talk about but could indeed cost them more than any other policy bungle, and that is the border. We'll discuss. Number two. This is a really dangerous game. You are seeing Democratic interest groups getting involved in Republican primaries, trying to secretly, below the radar, support the extreme candidate. They figure if if you nominate him, you know what, we can beat him. Well, well, guess what? You might not. Uh, That is Jonathan Carl, of course, uh, weighing in, talking about dark clouds gathering for the Dems as the 2002 midterms loom and a mad scramble for both Republicans and Dems to prevent another 2020 presidential rematch between Trump and Biden. Where do you stand? Number one. Talking to a leading Democratic lawmaker right now, there was a rare in-person presentation uh, earlier this week where some of the White House officials went to the Hill. It was not not well received. They said there was no strategy, no plan. This lawmaker said to me, we need to see the president be decisive. Yeah, uh, totally true. That was NBC. That was Peter Alexander. Recession looms, inflation soars, gas prices historic highs, flight delays by the thousands, and Biden blames everyone but himself and his surrogates follow his lead. Let's bring in Michael Goodwin. He is not a surrogate for the White House. In fact, he's sitting by with his jaw, I imagine, on the floor almost every day wondering how bad can it get. Michael Goodwin, welcome back. Good morning, Brian. Thank you. Hey, uh, first off... Uh, I mean, I cannot believe how bad this administration's been doing and how little responsibility they're taking for it and how much can go directly back to their policies. You write about that this weekend. Well, look, um, there are so many opportunities for a president to change the conversation, reset the direction. I mean, almost on any level, a president has this you know, unlimited power to reshape how people see uh, his administration and his policies. Uh, And the interview that President Biden did with the Associated Press last week, the first interview he's given other than to a late night comic uh, for four months, 
was was one of those opportunities. But there was no there there. It was the same old Biden saying the same old things that have been rejected by the public for good reason. I mean, his, his policies haven't worked. I mean, you were mentioning the border. I mean, there's nothing except his policies that have changed that have brought about this influx. You look at inflation. He still uh, – I mean, he has given up talking about the short term. It's sort of like the, uh, you know, the, the, the central bank. He no longer talks about transitory. But he doesn't really have a plan to do anything about it. Uh, and so people are just left to uh, have him blame others for it. And it, it goes on that way. He has no, no new idea or even a good packaging of the old bad ideas that would get people to give him a second look. And, and that's something of a cliché in campaigns, but it is true that even for uh, well-seasoned politicians, let's say, as Joe Biden certainly is, as presidents who are sort of ubiquitous and in people's faces everywhere, there comes a point when they're not doing well where they need the public to give them a second chance, to try to see them differently. And Biden just, he doesn't seem to get that. He doesn't, or he doesn't know how his staff, it's just, it's a level of incompetence and, and incoherence that I have never seen in, in a major candidate uh, for any office, really, but particularly for a sitting president, not to be able to do better in his public presentations, in his policies, in his surrogates. Who are the best surrogates for this president? I mean, name one. Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg. I mean, none of them go out there and, and say anything that would say, gee, I hadn't thought of it that way. Let me let me take a look at things differently. You know, like Brian Deese uh, was the guy they sent out over the weekend, Secretary Granholm, who's, a, who's, who's comically awful, hates natural gas and oil and says that we have to drill more. You know she doesn't mean that. And then you know Brian Deese doesn't, has never even worked in business before, is just spinning the same old tales. Here's what backs up your thesis. Peter Alexander, I pulled this from uh, Meet the Press. When the, so, the, so the message was the White House said they have a great message. They want to make sure their lawmakers got the message and were able to want to be there to answer all their questions. Listen to what insiders in the Democratic Party told the NBC reporter, Cut 10. But what's struck in the conversations I've had over the last several days is the real frustrations, Chuck, among some Democrats. Talking to a leading Democratic lawmaker right now, there was a rare in-person presentation uh, earlier this week where some of the White House officials went to the Hill. It was not not well-received. They said there was no strategy, no plan. This lawmaker said to me, we need to see the president be decisive. And they really feel like there's decision paralysis on some of these key issues like tariffs and on student loans. Do you believe this? Zagopin couldn't impress Democrats. Democrats says there's no plan. Think about think about that. Well, I mean, and they're, you know, they've all hitched their wagon to their Democratic president. I mean, that's what happens for people in Congress, you know, particularly in the House. I mean, you're up every two years, and if the president is not doing well, then all of that sludge is going to flow downhill at you. And that's what's happened to these members of Congress. So what are they doing? They're, they're berating their own president. They're breaking from him. It's, it's sort of every Democrat for himself at this point.
So one of the big stories, of course, was Governor Yunkin uh, winning in Virginia, which is a blue state. Not as blue as New York, but a blue state. It was once red, then went purple, then people were shocked by that. Do you believe that something like that could happen in New York? And do you see a candidate on the right that could really rock the political landscape? I do, Brian. Uh, and I think the, the likely nominee for the de- uh, Republicans in New York will be Lee Zeldin uh, for governor. And I think Zeldin is is a qualified candidate. I th- we'll see how he does, you know, as uh, as the campaign unfolds. The primary is coming up in just a couple of weeks. Uh, and then, of course, he'll have a, presuming he wins, and I believe he will win the primary, then he'll have, you know, a good stretch uh, until the fall election. But I think this is, this is a year when Republicans can win the governor's uh, race in New York. It has been since, it's 20 years now since George Pataki was the last Republican to win a statewide election in New York. That was 2002. Uh, Since then, it's been Democrats, 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 not only in the governor's office, of course, but in in the state legislature, in the controller's race, in the attorney general. I mean, Republicans have not come close, really, in all that time. This is the year, I think, when that's possible. And for two reasons related, of course, to the general uh, national consensus, and that is that it looks like a red wave is forming. New York is not exempt to that. A recent poll had Joe Biden's approval rating in New York at 35 percent. The second reason is that the redistricting process uh, was thrown out by the courts. The, the, the extreme gerrymander the Democrats did in, the, in the, the legislature was thrown out by the courts as too extreme. And so it was redrawn by an independent uh, draw, uh, yep. map drawer. And now there are a number of seats, perhaps 10 even, out of the 26. New York lost one seat. 10 out of the 26 that are really competitive. Republicans will surely win some of them, but if they could win eight or nine or 10, it would be remarkable. But I think that what's going to happen is that those competitive districts are going to boost Republican turnout. And of course, Democrats are demoralized by Joe Biden. There's not a lot of enthusiasm for the Democratic uh, likely candidate, uh, Kathy Hochul, who replaced Andrew Cuomo. She, she, She may... She'll almost certainly win the Democratic primary, but there's not a lot of enthusiasm for her. She's awful. Uh, so I think this is a kind of year where a good Republican candidate uh, can can pull it off. Yeah, I mean, with everyone leaving the state, uh, with uh, with the crime running rampant, which you can't underscore enough. Right. There's a, you know you could have crime in a, in a Republican city, but there's Republicans are trying to rein it in. We'll do whatever they can. There's you, the border was. Out of control under Trump, but he's doing everything to get it into control. People appreciate that. Even if they say, well, I don't like his policies. They're too tough. All right. But you know what his goal is to secure the country. The goal at the southern border is to ignore it and let unaccompanied minors fill up a stadium the size of Alabama football stadium. That is what we have to handle now in a country that's now strapped for money. But I want to bring you to something else, which is a little bit of a left turn, and that is guns. Now, Fox News does a poll and says there's enough strength behind the proposals that it seemingly 
they were outlined by Republicans and Democrats that talk about strengthening background checks. Uh, they talked about uh, get, looking into minors' records before they po- uh, uh, purchase a gun, like would have stopped perhaps the two 18-year-olds from opening up fire in Uvalde and Buffalo. So there's about four or five major uh, points of this. Jo- uh, John Cornyn put it together, led the charge, and got booed in Texas. But the, the stats say move the legal age uh, move the legal age of assault weapon purchases. Eighty-two percent are in support of that. Background checks for all purchases. Eighty-eight uh, percent are for, for that. Red flag laws for people who are a danger to themselves or others. Eighty-one percent for that. Banning assault weapons. Sixty-three percent are for that. They're not going to do that in this. Where do you think we're at with guns? Well, look, I think that uh, the nation is rightly horrified, particularly by school shootings more than anything else. I mean, it's just it tears your heart to to imagine your own child or a neighbor's child, your grandchild, whatever, in one of these situations. And so I think that is should be the starting point. And I think there are a number of things to do on the defensive side as well as the gun side, and that is uh, to have to have more uh, defensive measures taken in these schools. I mean, you can't stop, you know, you're not going to prevent any, everybody from getting a gun who shouldn't have one. Uh, there, there's enough guns out there that even if you stop producing them, you would not solve the problem. So I think that you've got to play defense as well. And what we saw in Texas, I think, was a horror show in part because of the way that the police uh, the defensive measures by the police were inadequate, the delays, et cetera. And so I think that's and, – and we saw that, too, in the Florida shooting uh, sometime some years ago. So there, there is a real role for defensive measures as well as all of these gun-focused issues. So I want you to hear what Brendan Buck said, why they think something might get done. He's a former advisor to Speaker Ryan and Boehner, Cut 22. Right now, I think it's a big moment for John Cornyn. John Cornyn has his ambitions to be the next majority leader in the Senate after Mitch McConnell retires. And my, my message to him is, suck it up. If you're going to be a majority leader, you have to do hard things. And this is gonna, does he want to be like a Ted Cruz where yeah. you're just playing to the base, or do you want to be someone who gets things done? And I think that's the big question. Well, I, what would you think about that? Well, look, I, I, I mean, I, I think this is – there are certain issues – Brian, that uh, you can't just give in to the majority in your district. And, you know, whether it's the people who show up to a certain rally and they boo you, I mean, A, I think the first response will be, well, they at least the polls are telling me something different. The polls are telling me that there is a vast majority for this. But even if not, I mean, I think there are certain matters of conscience where you have to vote where where your heart tells you is the right thing and uh that 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 former aide you just quoted there i mean i i think he's right there are these occasions where you know th- th- this is what separates the wheat from the chaff you know what's amazing to me is that any time you give on either side you look at it as a sellout when our whole system's been built to compromise i mean do people go to any type of social studies or history class or any type of government class. I mean, we it's, and I'm saying I'm talking about people a lot smarter than me, like the Ted Cruz of the world that gave to Ivy League school. They don't understand that we don't get anything done if if no one. There are times you can't compromise, but for the most part, you should be out there grinding it out, trying to come up with a deal. 
Well, you, and you know, Brian, I, I look at it also in terms of just daily life, normal daily life for any of us. I mean, we all compromise yeah. every day. We have to, whether with our neighbors, our family, our employers, our co co-workers. I mean, compromise is sort of built into society. Uh, and so you look at government, and it's the one area of life that refuses to compromise, and it co- and it says uh, that's principle. Yeah. I mean, I, it's not it's not the way the real world works. Exactly, and that's, it's not the way our system works. Hey, Michael Goodwin, thanks so much. You always talk great sense. Always appreciate it. Your calls next, Brian Kilmeade. So glad you're here. Radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, David, you're listening on WDBO in Orlando. Hey, David. I'm doing good, sir. How about yourself? Good. What's on your mind? Uh, and for all these school shootings and talking about soft targets and how do we defend these kids, how about we make these part of the teaching certificate and gun training? And not just a weekend at a range, something that we give the Marines uh, who do embassy duty. You so, know, David, this is the thing. You can't you know, force a teacher, force. but you can't force a teacher to get gun training. You should give them the option. Absolutely. And let, let it be a mystery who has it. But when you go into education. Can't make them carry you, it, but, yeah, if we didn't make them carry it, that's fine. That's their choice. But it's, they, that's a skill that they would have in the event they would need it. And maybe have, even if they're liberal, they have a little better understanding of guns and gun, and what guns and weapons are. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't think that's it. If you if you want to arm teachers, I'm for it. And to know that it, uh, an assailant could be in there, they don't know what teacher's armed. That that worked. But you can't say, hey, uh, you're you're a, you're an elementary school teacher. You better show up for your arms training. A lot of people are upset. You know, uh, don't ever want to see a gun. And I don't blame them. That's why they're in education. So I can't force them. It would definitely be beneficial. Uh, but I want to give them the option. To, for people to say, oh, you shouldn't do it, is nuts. Of course you should do it. If that elementary school teacher, especially in Texas, had a gun, that guy's dead. By the way, if that if that cop shot him when he was on the outside of the building, the whole assassination doesn't happen. Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. If Biden does step down or say he's going to step down, then the Democrats have, I mean, we've all noticed this, a problem like, but who? Right. And he mentioned, who is there, Bill Clinton, who's going to come along? And I thought, okay, well, Clinton and Obama, obviously the last two successful Democrats. Is, Is there a Bill Clinton or Barack Obama out there? Or is such a broadly centrist Democrat, no longer even really possible. As Bill Maher, uh, I always thought was a left-wing Democrat until recently because the party has gone off out of their minds and this president has been remarkably ineffective. Joining me now, Doug Collins, former ranking member of the U.S. House Judiciary Committee, author of The uh, the Clock and the Calendar, a front row look at the Democrats' obsession with Donald Trump. Doug, uh, welcome back. I just wanted you to comment on that. I mean, what about a moderate Democrat? Are you talk to these men and women away from the cameras? Are there any? No, there's not. And I think that's the interesting uh, 
place right now that the Democrats are finding themselves. I made a comment. There was another interview. Somebody asked me about the Democrats. If, what if Biden stepped down? And I said, well, I think it actually creates more problems for them if he steps down because, you know, who's next? Nobody wants Kamala Harris. They don't want the vice president. She's not uh, popular. And then you looked at their uh, 2020 campaign, you know, going leading up into their primaries. I mean, it was just a, a, a farce. And so I think they are in trouble. If they're looking for that uh, person that could unite them, I mean, some of their stronger ones right now, they've alienated their own, you know, sort of base. Tulsi Gabbard, uh, who was very, you know, on the liberal side, but is now taking offense to a lot of the, what the Democrats did. She's no, you know, I'm not sure how viable she would be in this kind of a primary. So, it, I mean, I think they got more problems without him right now than they do with him, and they got a ton with him. Gavin Newsom went on Truth Social, Donald Trump's website, and trying to pitch his case. Clearly, he wants to run for president. Oh, desperately, yes. You've got several of them like that that you're, you're looking at. I mean, it wouldn't be surprised to me that if you – from Gavin Newsom out there, you'd see a Jared Polis out of uh, uh, Colorado. I mean, there's, there's several that may try to jump into this, but they don't have – that one unifier that can go outside of the blue states easily and, and pick up votes. And I think that was the thing that, that led a lot of the Democrats to Biden, you know, just a couple of years ago, was the simple fact that, yes, he was liberal, but he wasn't an offensive liberal. And I think that's the part that the party is struggling with, you know, greatly right now is because they've spent the last year and a half going, it's, I mean, it's, it's worse than NASCAR. It's, it's turn left, turn left, turn left. I mean, that's all they've done. Yeah, absolutely. Doug Collins, our guest. Uh, Doug, I want you to hear uh, over the weekend, you know, Herschel Walker, as you know, got the nomination to run against Raphael Warnock to try to get that Senate seat for the next six years. Over the weekend, we find out over the last few days that he has three kids that some say he didn't acknowledge while talking about being the uh, being parents is one of the most important things you can be. Uh, This is what he said about the controversy. Well, first of all, they knew the truth. You know, I've never denied any of my kids, and I love them more than they, I love anything. And they didn't do anything that just made me want to fight harder because I'm tired of people misleading the American people. I'm tired of people misleading my family. So he said in forms that he's filled out before, I'm not sure, you, you run for election all the time, that he said he had these, he acknowledged these children with other women. What, what's your, what is it like in Georgia? How is this resonating? Well, it's it's becoming just a wreck. I mean, the month of June, to be honest, from a PR standpoint for the Herschel Walker campaign, has not been good, but we predicted that. I told you a couple months ago about that I, I think they should have been out more, you know, getting some of this vetting going. Look, the form he's talking about was a Presidential Physical Fitness Advisory Council, in which, by the way, it was said on the form would not be shared with anybody else. But that's not the problem, Brian. This is This is where Herschel has the biggest issue. It's, I mean, he did a decent job deflecting there, but it's not about the fact that he had these kids. That's, that's irrelevant. They're not attacking the kids. They're not going after the kids. What they're attacking is the fact that he's gone to many places over the last three or four years and said, look, you can leave the mother of the child, but you never leave the child. You always stay involved. You've got to have parental involvement. And it's documented that at least one and possibly more of these children, he, he'll send child support and maybe a Christmas gift and a birthday gift, but he has no physical involvement with the child. And that's contradictory to what he's saying in these speeches that he's been paid to give. So that's the controversy. He did a good job deflecting it. I think right now it's just it, the good part for Herschel's campaign is early in June, and we'll see where it goes from there. Right. Uh, so, yeah, we'll see where it goes because uh, the Warnock campaign is a little bit of a dicey situation because, remember, the domestic abuse yep. charge against him, right? Yep, yep. 
There is, and there's a divorce, uh, you know, a filed, a, you know, a divorce uh, proceeding that's been closed. So, I mean, it's, it's harder for them to attack this. I think, really, like I said, I think what they're looking at is the hypocrisy in it, and I think that's the, you know, again, you have to understand what they're attacking. He did a good job deflecting it, but this is going to be regular. I've said this before. The, the press were just waiting for him to become the nominee, and then all of this from, you know, law enforcement to his business dealings, everything is now going to come out, and he's having to now deal with it for the first time. Right, uh, and if he has a good team around him, he'll get through it. Do you think he has a good team yep. around him? He does, There's, especially so some of the folks who actually were on my team before I've had them. You know, they're, they're trying, they're working with The one thing that, that is apparent is Herschel is going to have to learn, just like every good offensive, defense player, that there's some good linebackers. He can't trust the press. And I don't mean that this is a blanket statement, but the press are there for a job, and they're not to ask him basic questions about how he was in football, and that most people are going to give him the benefit of the doubt but they're not there. The Democrats are not there to play kumbaya politics. He, they, he, they, he can't just come out and say, can't we all get along? That's not going to work. He's going to have to, you know, go, you know, state his positions, state them clearly, not be inconsistent, and then they're going to have to vet what he's out there, you know, his, his, his speeches so that they're more than just the fluffy, hey, I come from a great background, here's where I am. That's just not going to work. Because Lafayette Warnock's TV ads, Brian, if you've not seen them, uh, he's probably one of the best ad people that I've seen, and I've been around this business for 40 years. Warnock, you say, has very effective ads, you say. Yes. Oh, they're, they're one of, they're some of the best in the last two cycles, and, I, and I've seen them all over the country, some of the best uh, cycles. He understands his audience, and, and they've done a great job with them. And why is it that, is his audience different from Stacey Abrams' audience? Because early on, it doesn't seem like Stacey Abrams has the momentum she had last time. You know, the, we know her comment about this is not a great place to live right. uh, in the past. But Abrams seems to be trailing by four to six points every time against going against Kemp when she still hasn't admitted she lost the last time. <laughs> How does Warnock and Abrams differ? They, they differ in style. And, and remember, Abrams had to go, Abrams caught lightning in a bottle. In, in 2018, and I've said this many times. I don't. I think it'll be a lot harder on this campaign because not only did she become a national mega superstar of the left after that campaign, um, you know, it's hard to to catch up on people twice. Okay, so that's why it's hard to repeat as national champions or in sports or anything else. It's hard to to do that, and she's having finding that out. Warnock, because of the mistakes down here with the way we had to run a jungle general primary with myself, Leffler, and Warnock. Warnock never got vetted. Warnock never had to endure a a real campaign of issues because Leffler didn't hit him and, and we couldn't hit him in the primaries. So he got a pass. So in some ways, he's running a fresh campaign. He has been able to put his voice as I'm this unique uh pastor who cares about everybody else he doesn't have the national baggage that Stacey Abrams has so talking to Doug Collins here who knows the president very well and I know the president has huge respect for you so we talked about the Democrats really desperately to move on from Joe Biden even though he doesn't want to move on he can't even stand up on his bicycle or walk up the Air Force <laughs> One stairs and it's it's pathetic and yet we're stuck with this for the next three years two two and a half but on the other side even though the January 6th hearings, only 9% claim to be paying close attention, 
Is there a sense among Republican circles as Ron DeSantis has already raised $100 million, Mike Pompeo has not ruled out running, and Governor Yunkin's another guy they're talking about, Governor Christie's in. Is there a sense among Republicans they're ready to move on from Trump? Uh, a few. I don't think there's – I think it's, 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 it's a situation right now to where I think people – or saying, look, we like Donald Trump, but at the same point in time, he's you know he's not said completely he's running. He's gonna um, he's given every indication he wants to. So I think there's always going to be some kicking of tires. There's always this newness factor. I mean, think about it. A year and a half ago, we'd have never mentioned Glenn Youngkin as a presidential candidate, and, and so I think this is a lot of just hey, what else is out there, and let's be evolved in case he does. Because most every poll, for the most part shows that Trump is still the, the preferred nominee by a pretty wide margin. There's been a couple of lately and some straw polls at certain events that have not shown that. So I think it's, it's let's be ready in case, but I think if Trump goes in full force, you might get one or two of those out there, but I think the rest of them would say that it would keep their powder dry. What have you watched from January 6th hearings? Uh, I've watched and seen nothing new so far. I mean, that's the, that's the part, Brian, and I don't know from your perspective. I was expecting, they kept saying, oh, we have all this new I know. stuff. I haven't seen any new stuff out there. I mean, all the stuff about Pence, all the stuff about, um, you know, the, the you know, what he called Pence, you know, just some of these other things, all have been out there. And I did an interview the other day. I was, I was following Jane Harmon, former Democrat out of California, and she made a comment. She said she wished that the members would stay off of the talk shows because she said, number one, it made them seem like it is very partisan, but also there's because of what they're saying, nothing is new in the hearings, and, and, and nobody's watching the hearings. I mean, if they are, they already believe that something terrible has happened, and you know they want to just be reinforced with everything they've heard before. So at this point, I just yeah, there's nothing new so far. So, you know, I find amazing. I listen to the Daily, the New York Times. Uh, they have their, their, their podcast, and they're talking about this. And they said how great it is to have, to have the Democrats be able to get their side out without the interruptions of impeachment. And I'm thinking to myself, do they realize what they're saying? So, so wait. So if they could just say what they would say their piece without people like Doug Collins interrupting with what they consider an important part of this story, which is the other side of the story. If you're that confident yeah. about your story, welcome all comers. Oh, I mean, that's just amazing. In fact, the thing that they miss is, well, the left does not like to be questioned with harmful, pesky things like facts. And, you know, when you have a cross-examination, when you have a Doug Collins or a Jim Jordan or a Jim, you know, Jim, when we ask the opposite, you know, when you have a panel that all agrees, you're not going to say, you know, well, sorry, you say this, but is there, you know, was there something else here? Was there, was there other, did you call upon, you know, Nancy Pelosi? And also the bigger thing is, is with no back, sidebar questions, with no opposition, if you were, even if everybody sort of agreed that, hey, we need to get to the bottom of January 6th, which you, you did on like the security measures, by not calling Pelosi, not interviewing her staff, not interviewing Hoyer, who are actually in control of security measures for the, of capital on those days, it, it shows the partisanship, and they actually lose credibility. Did you, uh, on some part of you, Doug Collins, do you, do you wish you could have got to the president before the whole January 6th rally or during? Uh, I, at that point, it was, uh, it, was, it was frustrating, and I think there's a lot of point. Uh, you know, it's, it's become now, you know, the, the whole situation with you know, a lot of uh, the discussion around it has been, has been 
frustrating. I think I wish the transition had gone a little smoother, even with the problems that everybody was, you know, talking about. Even the president keeps talking about today. But if it had been changed a little bit different, I think it would be with the Biden administration it's imploded. I don't think your earlier question, the 2024 question, would be ever in doubt. Trump would be already up 80 percent and people ready for him to be back. Oh, absolutely. And if he ever said, hey, uh, the Biden's just going to tour you through the White House, uh, let you know where Hunter could sleep uh, and uh, I'll, I'll see you later. And the American people would be clamoring for this, especially as the more and more it becomes more and more factual how the Trump thing, how the Russian thing was a, a big hoax. Yeah, I mean, he was never. I mean, the, the thing that's going to come out in history, uh, Brian, I think, is this: number one, that, that Trump did more for, in, in a lot of different areas than, than one was ever given credit for. And number two, there's never been a president that, from before he was elected, the internal mechanisms of government yeah. were the very things that were attacking him. And I think that I mean, he has every right, especially from January, from November 16, 2016. Through that first year in particular, I mean, it was, I mean, we've, I've shown it, you've talked about it. I mean, we showed that the actual governmental agencies were attacking uh, the former president. That's just, it's just sad. Doug, uh, Doug Collins, uh, do you know what you're doing next? I know you got a successful radio show going, podcast. Are you thinking about going back in? Well, I'm looking at it. That happens after November. And um, right now, just right now, one of the things, like I said, with the podcast, the Doug Collins podcast, just trying to get this message out. The conservatives, I've seen too many times, Brian, that our conservatives are backing up and we're, we don't want to enter the marketplace. you got to stay out there with the ideas because people now are actually receptive to it when they see what's happening with gas prices, they see what's happening with everything else in the world standing. We've got to make sure, though, that conservatives don't seem like out of step voices either. We've got to make sure that our voice is making, you know, that people are understanding we're caring about where they are in life. Doug Collins, thanks so much. Always great. Brian, it's always good. It's always good to be with you. Take care. All right, go get him. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Listen, when I come back, I want to hear from you, uh, and not just about your Father's Day, not just about Juneteenth, but all these things. Is, is this party ready to move on from both Biden and Trump? I'm sensing no, but if Trump declares early... Uh, we'll see if uh, who else jumps in to take him on outside Christie, outside Governor Youngkin could, could jump in. He's got no history necessarily of a personal friendship that would stop him. We'll see. Brian Kilmeade show. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. You just have to look around the world today to recognize that the two principal drivers of inflation are the pandemic and Putin. We're seeing this everywhere. It is a global phenomenon. As I mentioned, in the U.K., inflation's hit 9%. Right, in but Europe, the point it's is those over- are the things you can't control. I'm talking about the things you can. Absolutely. So and how we- do you win that credibility back? Well, if we look at the things that we can control, we win credibility by taking action. This president is acting. And this president wants to jack up taxes. Do you believe that? In a mini Build Back Better plan. Bill, listen to WSKY. Hey, Bill, in Florida. Yeah, Brian, the mainstream media made mention of the fact that Colombia voted in a communist president. But they didn't mention who he is. He is a murderous thug who is the head of the guerrillas that kidnapped and murdered thousands of people. How did he win? 
Well, yesterday was the election, and uh, I don't know what the points were, but my wife is from Columbia. She was following the election very closely and very depressed about this. Now he joins Bolivia, uh, Venezuela, Cuba, in the region of people he can't deal with. The Mexican president loves this guy. So we have to make sure that the Colombian people, I mean, that was a... That was beginning to be a success story, right? I mean, we're going to let Colombia go skate into being a, a narco state again, where that is their number one export? Andrew, listening in Indiana. Hey, Andrew. Hello, how are you? Good. What's on your mind? I just had a couple of questions uh, and concerns about uh, elements that have been, have been ongoing, but yet nobody seems to be covering the stories. A couple of those are... Uh, Chuck Schumer's responses to the chief justices last year, where he's made some pretty aggressive statements and even to the point of a threat, yep. and even calling them by name and no accountability, any, any type of accountability has been happening on his level, uh, but yet they're so eager to get uh, former President Trump. The other concern I had was why President Biden was never given an impeachment process for treason by aiding and abetting a known terrorist organization like the Taliban including names, armament. Yeah, well, the way they do it with by, I would say their ineptness allowed that. And I blame the military, too, because he had to put the plan together, but they had to execute the plan, and they didn't. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach, it's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, coming to you from Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, heard around the world, and hopefully in the Ukraine. Bottom of the hour, Brett Baer, chief political anchor for Fox News, will be with us. We'll talk a little golf, too. And uh, in a matter of moments, going to go inside politics with Josh Krauthammer, uh, Krauthauer. He's a National General Senior political, uh, political Columnist. But first, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by LifeFact. Save a life in a choking emergency. Visit LifeFact.net to learn more and use code BK10 to save 10%. Number three. Over 100,000 Americans died from fentanyl overdoses that come across that border. This is, this is unprecedented, the amount of deaths and the amount of crossings in just a year and a half under this president. And, I, and, I, and it's because they haven't done a single thing. they got no enforcement strategy. There's no consequence, no deterrence. Yeah, that's Thomas Holman beside himself because the biggest story this administration won't talk about is happening, and he cares so much about the border, so should you. Could this indeed cost them more than any other political bungle? The border will bring you the numbers. Number two. This is a really dangerous game. You are seeing Democratic interest groups getting involved in Republican primaries, trying to secretly, below the radar, support the extreme candidate. They figure if if you nominate him, you know what, we can beat him. Well, well, guess what? You might not. Dark clouds gather for the Dems on the 2022 midterms, midterms loom and a mad scramble for both Republicans and Dems to prevent a 2020 presidential rematch between Trump and Biden. Where do you stand? Number one. Talking to a leading Democratic lawmaker right now, there was a rare in-person presentation uh, earlier this week where some of the White House officials went to the Hill. It was not not well received. They said there was no strategy, no plan. This lawmaker said to me, we need to see the president be decisive. 
Meet the press's Peter Alexander. That's NBC. Recession looms, inflation soars, gas prices historic highs, fight delays by the thousands. And President Biden blames everyone but himself and his surrogates. Surrogates follow his lead. Now let's bring in Josh, Josh Krushar. He's the National he's the National Journal senior national political columnist. Uh, and Josh, welcome back. Hey, great to be back on the show, Brian. All right, Josh, first off, I mean, there, there's so much going on. I was struck by the fact that this week, I kind of lost track of this, the White House was going down to Capitol Hill to get together on the messaging. The Democrats emerged and said they have no plan. We're in the middle of a massive crisis, and there's no plan? Yeah, this is reminiscent of that famous phrase uttered during the Obama years, leading from behind, where, you know, on inflation, this administration was assuring the public that it was transitory, that there's nothing to worry about. And now the spin is, yeah, we're, we're having a lot of inflation, but, you know, it's not going to be that bad. We're not going to get to a recession. They're spinning their way out of a problem instead of actually dealing with the fundamental issues and coming up with a policy, having the president lead, give speeches, come up with a proposal, uh, work with his party to, to get, get, get something done. And that's a complaint you're starting to hear from Democrats, too. It used to be more from Republicans that this administration was out of touch with the concerns that so many Americans are facing. Now you're hearing it from a lot of rank-and-file Democrats and, and some of them publicly. Uh, so it's a big political problem. It's obviously a bad political environment for, for Democrats. All you got to do is look at the national polls, Biden's job approval number below 40. You've got generic ballot. Republicans have their largest lead in many, many years. And, and inflation, immigration, crime, the economy writ large, these are the top issues, and they all tend to favor Republicans. So that's why you're, when, when things are not going well, you have finger-pointing, you have backbiting, and now a lot of that finger-pointing is directed right at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue at the president of the United States. And you could argue that the thing that affects most people, like you, you're so enmeshed in politics, as am, as am I. And a lot of our audience just is living day to day, and they say, you know, they, they know what's going on, but they don't live it. But if you have to tell, they know what gas prices are. They know what their energy bill is. And they know this administration's on the record saying they want to, they want to bring an, an, an end to fossil fuels. We're not going to forget that. And the lack of sincerity when people say, well, you got to refine more and drill more, we all know he doesn't mean that. Yeah, when you have in the beginning days of your administration, John Kerry, the climate czar, and Gina McCarthy, who's a very progressive energy, energy czar, green, green energy uh, activist, are, are they're the faces of, of, of energy policy, you know where, where this administration's heart lies. Now they're dealing with an economic problem, gas prices uh, through the roof. There needs to be more energy supply domestically, maybe from the Saudi, Saudi Arabia, which is why the president's going over there uh, in July. But but they, they, they've, they've dug a hole. They've, they've dug the hole, and now they're just starting to dig out of it. And I, I think it's too late, politically speaking. Um, and they really aren't talking. Uh, that's one area, Brian, that they're really not leading or, or promoting uh, aggressively, trying to improve the, the domestic energy supply in this country to, to get to a point where prices could come down or prices could be stabilized in the long term. Uh, but, yeah, that, that, that is that, – there's a bubble in Washington. And you see this in a whole host of issues where – the, the folks in the White House have a political view that's disconnected from the average voter in, in Pennsylvania or in Ohio or in Minnesota. And it's taking them a while to realize that their view on a whole host of issues, energy is a big one, the economy is another, cultural issues too, that they're not with where the public is. It, it's been a, a tough challenge for them to accommodate and move back to the middle. Josh Crosher, our, our guest right now, could bring us inside politics. Brian Deese, the director of National Economics Council, was trying to spin his way out of this. And I think that they are trying to get us ready for a mini Build Back Better plan as Joe Manchin is now working 
with Chuck Schumer. Cut one. Lowering prescription drug costs is one piece. Lowering utility costs by providing tax incentives for energy is another piece. But equally important, lowering the federal deficit mm -hmm. by enacting long overdue tax reform. If we can do a package like that, we can move forward in the near future. It will not only help in lowering prices, but it will send a signal to the markets and the global economy. The United States is really deadly serious about taking on this. Hiking taxes isn't going to change the price of milk. And he goes, she goes on, and she gave him a hard time, to her credit. That's Margaret Brennan of Face the Nation. But Brian Deese is getting us ready for the fact that we're going to up corporate taxes as if it's not going to affect our global trade. And he's going to try to jack up taxes on the, uh, on the upper bracket. It only got a 1% in, uh, decrease under Trump. So what do you hear is uh, brewing underneath this, Josh? Well, look, the White House wants to win any way they can get it. Uh, they, they think that some, some package involving maybe a gas tax holiday, maybe hiking taxes on corporations to shut the deficit, close the deficit, maybe, you know, trying to come up with some of the smaller scale elements of that Build Back Better legislation. Maybe that could get through the Senate before Biden uh, is dealing with the midterm elections. I, I, I still think that's a heavy lift. I know Joe Manchin has been involved in these conversations, but back home in West Virginia, some of this stuff is, is going to be a tough sell. Uh, he already has kind of played Lucy in the football with his party on a whole list of other issues. I'm not sure if he, he's going to be 100% of the way there on any scaled back proposal. And, and, and Kirsten Cinema is also someone. She, she, she has been very resistant to corporate tax hikes and tax hikes in general. So she's not, Manchin may be more accommodating than Cinema on that front. So getting that 50, getting even 50 Democrats to be on the same page on anything is, is really tough, especially when the political environment is the way it is. So Democrats. you're not expecting it. Your prediction is nothing. Well, I, I think they're going to try. I think they, that's, they've got to try. So that's their only, only option going forward. But we're getting closer to the elections. Politics plays a larger and larger role the closer we get to November. And I still think Manchin and, and even more so cinema are going to be hard, hard, hard to convince on, on whatever they come forward with. The other big story is guns. Uh, we, know, we know the horrific story in Buffalo and Uvalde, Texas. And now there's an outline agreement between the two parties. Murphy and Cornyn led the charge on both sides. Uh, now there's even though Senator Cornyn was booed at this Texas event uh, over the weekend, many people are wondering if that's going to even though this this is not earth shattering stuff. They talk about hardening schools and make uh, bringing security and then they're talking about mental health and providing resources for big and small schools across the country. And then they're talking about also red flag laws and a few other things. So if this outline becomes law, will will this actually happen? Who will it help? Brendan Buck, former advisor to Ryan and Boehner, said this, cut 22. Right now, I think it's a big moment for John Cornyn. John Cornyn has his ambitions to be the next majority leader in the Senate after Mitch McConnell retires. And my, my message to him is suck it up. If you're going to be a majority leader, you have to do hard things. And this is going to, does he want to be like a Ted Cruz where yeah. you're just playing to the base? Or do you want to be someone who gets things done? And I think that's the big question. What do you, what do you hear is happening, Josh? Is something going to get done? Should it get done? Yeah, I, I, I'm more on the bullish side that they can get something done. This is a compromise, and in, in any compromise, each side is going to have to give up things that their base doesn't like. And frankly, President Biden gave a speech that was at odds with what Chris Murphy, the liberal Democratic senator from Connecticut, has been negotiating as part of part of this package. Um, Republicans likewise. I know red flag laws can be controversial in, in, in certain uh, conservative circles, but uh, it, it, it's broadly popular, and, and there are a lot of Republicans that were willing to sign on to this framework. So, look, I think there's some they're writing the language. They're trying to come up with, with translating the ideas into an actual bill. Uh, there were some stumbles last week. I think they, from what I've heard from my sources, they've, they've come to some agreement on, on some of the, the, the contentious points. 
but 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 yeah, I think there is a moment for uh, you have you need ten Republican senators, you need sixty votes. Uh, you do have uh, enough of the Republican senators that want to get something done, want to show that Congress isn't gridlocked, that they can actually respond uh, on multiple fronts: gun issues, mental health, school security, which mm. this still does in a small scale way. Do you believe that this is going to be a substantial wave, enough of a wave to take the House and Senate for Republicans? The House, uh, certainly. I mean, the, the political environment, if you talk to both Democrats and Republicans, is favorable to Republicans at least since 2010 and maybe even uh, greater at this point. Uh, the, 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 the Republicans only need a handful of seats to win the back the majority. I think it's a near fait accompli. Senate's a little dicier. I, I'd say Republicans have an advantage, but they, they're worried about some of their candidates being ready for prime time, whether they're, they're, they're some of these Trump-endorsed candidates in particular, like Herschel Walker, I know – Who's been on your show? And you've got Dr. Oz. They, they may well win, but they, they, they're rookies. They're 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 still kind of getting used to training camp and, and getting used to the political landscape. And uh, the environment for Republicans is very favorable, but ultimately candidates matter, and they're going to have to run good races, especially in the Senate, right? I mean, it's pretty much matchups make fights. Uh, the way they match up in the state is almost going to be impervious to what's going on in the country. Is that correct? That's right. Senate, Senate races are always the best. It is like a prize fight between two top contenders, and candidates mean a lot more in the Senate races than they do in the House races. So, you know, whether Herschel Walker is able to live up to that potential, whether Dr. Oz can can kind of evolve from being a, a, a physician on TV to a, a good Senate candidate, those are going to be the big tests for Republicans. If they can pass that test, then I think Republicans will, will win the Senate. But there are a lot of question marks still to come. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Josh, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Uh, Josh Koshar, giving some quality time here, bringing us inside Washington. When we come back, I want to find out what's going on in your world. Uh, here we are on Juneteenth, one day after Father's Day, and we're sitting there looking around saying, what kind of summer is this going to be? Am I going to be able to go on a flight, a fortification, or what type of adjustments will I have to make in terms of maybe even sending my kid to college? You look at your investment or 529, it is significantly decreased, although today we're seeing the market go up 220 points as of now. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So far, Mitch McConnell still supporting the deal. Uh, still giving it a, a the, the green light to do it. He hasn't actually come out and said he's going to vote for this deal, but 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 giving the green light to do it. And, and I think there's a reason for that. I think that uh, Republicans want the midterms uh, to be run on inflation, on the economy, economic anxiety, and if they can take the gun issue off the table and say, look, we've done something. And I think this is something. It's 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 far short of what uh, what, what Democrats uh, would, would, how far they would like to go. But it is something. If they can take that issue off the table, uh, they can have a clearer shot to run an, a, a campaign based on the economy. You know, George, it's standard negotiating, right? Um, if you're corning right now, you want to make people believe you may walk or have to walk away, so they don't ask for more at the end. So you, so then people go, like, oh, well, at least we got. Okay, good. He's hanging in there. We got this. This is standard political negotiating. We'll see what happens, uh, you know, because it doesn't seem that extreme gun reform that every every Republican fears, uh, the responsible gun owners fear. Red flag laws is something we got to be able to get right because we got to stop the next lunatic from killing his family or shooting third graders. 
without screwing up the the Robertsons of the world who I just watched uh, last night on Fox News Channel and you out there who love to go hunting and fishing or shooting. We don't want to screw you up, but we do want to screw up the next would-be assassin. So let's see if there's a way to do it. All right, Jim, you're listening on the stream in Scottsdale, Arizona, the illegal uh, illegal immigrant capital of the world. Hey, Jim. Hey there. Um, yeah, I wanted to push back uh, or at least uh, share some information about uh, inflation rates in other countries. Okay. Uh, because that, that continues to be a talking point the Democrats use, saying it's global inflation. There's 14 or 15 other countries that have inflation rate lower than um, the U.S. In fact, you can go to Google and, and just look up tradingeconomics.com, and it lists the countries, including several of our allies. Uh, we've got France on there, uh, South Korea, Italy, Mexico, Germany, all with lower inflation rates than we have. So... Um, I thought yesterday Shannon uh, Bream did a great job with Brian Deeth, but I think there needs to be more pushback from the Republicans saying that simply is not true. We aren't managing it as well as other countries. So I just wanted to share that with you. No, I appreciate it. You're 100 percent right. I think the one country, the people point to the U.K. yesterday, but you look at China, you look at Germany, you look at almost every European Union nation, look at Vietnam, you look at Japan, significantly less uh, than our uh, inflation rate. So why is that? So let's look at it. Tell me one thing that Pete Buttigieg has done addressing the supply chain. Uh, well, we left, the, we left the docks open 24 hours. We don't have any truck drivers. So well, what are you doing about the truck drivers? Where's your national program on that? How many times have you gone to the docks in California? I doubted hardly any. These guys don't even work weekends. It's absolutely crazy. And as I mentioned, guns is important. I think the trade is important. I also think the border is important. This guy, this woman, Myra Flores, she's a Republican. She flipped a seat that's been Democrats for almost 100 years, cut 20. What do you want to see with regard to legal immigration? Well, I want to improve the process. You know, I do believe that it's outdated. So we need a process where it's, you know, safer and faster for the good people that want to come here to the United States and work hard for the American dream. I do believe that we need to focus on legal immigration and not illegal immigration that is only funding criminal organizations and, of course, also increasing uh, human smuggling and human trafficking and also child trafficking and children are innocent no matter where they're from. I think that they need to be our priority in keeping them safe. And the Biden administration is not doing that. Not close. And things, people get ticked off. And now we find out they're shipping away these border communities are so overwhelmed. And I think Democrats personally are getting worried about losing these traditionally Democratic areas. They're shipping them to different parts of Texas, like San Angelo. San Angelo is a small town. They got to know every single person that comes in and out or the frequency, uh, the local gas station, let alone the ones who are going to be full-time members of your fourth-grade class. So they're doing that. They're doing the same thing in Arizona. They're shipping people over to Los Angeles in buses. And how do you think people are going to feel? Why would they vote for that? One guy's trying to shut down sanctuary cities that allow people to live and not be reported. The other one is trying to let everybody in possible. And put the vice president in charge that totally can't handle it. And we come back. Brett Baer joins us. Not only is he talking about what's happening in politics and his debate between Lindsey Graham and Bernie Sanders, but also on my interview with Greg Norman on One Nation on Saturday night uh, about this brand new, brand new league uh, that I think has got everybody uh, as everybody talking. I'm talking about in golf.
Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Mostly what you need to do to reduce inflation is reduce demand. And that is a very hard process to control. And so it usually leads to a recession. All of that tells me that while I wouldn't presume to be able to judge uh, the timing, uh, the dominant probability would be that by the end of next year, uh, we would be seeing a recession in the American economy. Can you imagine that? The end of next year after going through inflation and gas prices like we're going through now and now a uh, problem with air travel and supply chain. And then we get hit with the recession in, in 2023. Brett Baer, chief political anchor for Fox News, anchor special report tonight at six. Um, and of course, uh, always love to have him on. Brett, welcome back. Hey, Brian. Larry Summers has definitely given uh, the Biden administration ulcers, but most of the time he ends up right, correct? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think he's been uh, pretty accurate on the inflation warnings, about the warnings about Build Back Better, about the warnings about the American Rescue Plan. Um, You know, he was sending out warning flares a long time ago. I think this time he may be behind the curve on this. Um, There are a lot of economic experts um, who look at the situation now and believe that we're in currently a recession and that, you know, that that it's hitting now uh, and likely will go on for some time. But he's saying it's the end of next year. Uh, That's still a pretty dismal forecast for a guy who's pretty aligned with, obviously, the Obamas and and the uh, Democrats. Right. Um, so yesterday I was struck by the fact that uh, Peter Alexander said this. This is NBC. Meet the press. Said this about what the message was from the White House last week. The big story was the White House is going to get leadership, congressional leadership on message so they know how to attack high inflation rates and high gas prices. Cut 13. Excuse me. Cut 10. But what's struck in the conversations I've had over the last several days is the real frustrations, Chuck, among some Democrats. Talking to a leading Democratic lawmaker right now, there was a rare in-person presentation uh, earlier this week where some of the White House officials went to the Hill. It was not not well received. They said there was no strategy, no plan. This lawmaker said to me, we need to see the president be decisive. And they really feel like there's decision paralysis on some of these key issues like tariffs and on student loans. Is that your read, too? I think it is. I mean, I, I, I sense that there's real angst on Capitol Hill from, from Democratic lawmakers, uh, real worry. They know what's coming. I mean, you look at the Gallup poll where this uh, positions, it, it's actually positioned worse than 2010. And if you remember, President Obama lost 63 seats um, that year in the House. And it's just, it, it's not a pretty picture now. And their Democratic lawmakers are not hearing what they want to hear from the Biden administration, which, um, you know, is has been slow to act, at least. Absolutely. So what can we expect? Because I hear that Joe Manchin's now dealing with uh, Chuck Schumer about a mini bill back better. Yeah, he is. They're in talks and uh, there'll be all kinds of stipulations and Manchin will drive the day. Uh, but it's around the edges. I mean, it's not the the massive spending uh, that you saw, but it's still more spending. Uh, and, you know, it's some kind of compromise that Manchin's working on, but we don't have the framework of that as of yet. So I didn't watch on Fox Nation, but I watched on Fox News your debate, Lindsey Graham and Bernie Sanders at the Kennedy Center. 
uh, or the Kennedy uh, Library, I think it was, over in Massachusetts. Uh, I'm wondering what you think I thought was really good, really interesting, especially not knowing that not an election tomorrow. We're just electing on issues. What was your takeaway? I think there's a possibility to do more of that. I mean, the, the two characters there are pretty diametrically opposed when it comes to ideology. And, and there wasn't a lot of movement on Bernie Sanders' part when it came to compromise other, on, other than he might vote for the gun legislation. Um, but I do think that there's a way to formulate that where discussions happen. And if we can be part of that that effort to set the table where, where politicians of different stripes come to try to find common ground, I think it's a good thing. I mean, it made interesting, substantive conversation. Saturday night, I'm sure you were watching, and you interviewed Greg Norman about his live tour. So this uh, Saudi Wealth Fund is backing it, and the 17 PGA players went and played in the first event. All 17 got suspended. They want to take Greg Norman's Hall of Fame status away from him. Uh, before I play a little of Greg's comment, what do you, what do you think about this tour being such an avid golfer? Well, I, I think it's sad a little bit in that um, there's this battle between golfers and uh, there's this split of tours. And I think that that's, there's a sad element to it. Now, I understand the guys who are leaving the tour who are making this crazy amount of money. I mean, the guy who finished last in the last tournament got 120 grand. I mean, he barely broke 80. <laughs> you know, so these guys are thinking about their families. The guy who won, Charles Schwartzel, won $4.7 million. That's more than he made in a year. Uh, and that's that's crazy money. So you can't fault those guys. But there is this battle between tours. And for a golfer, that that seems sad in some way. And people are uh, jumping on the fact that the Saudis are the one bankrolling it. And uh, they brought up the 9-11 families. Here's what Greg Norman responded to that with. Cut 30. Yeah, look, I'm disappointed people go down that path, quite honestly. Look, uh, if they want to look at it in that prison, then why does the PGA Tour have 23 sponsors within the PGA Tour doing $40-plus billion worth of business with Saudi Arabia? Why is it okay for the sponsors? Why is it okay, Brian, that um, there's a Saudi sponsor in Aramco, the largest sponsor of women's golf in the world? Why is it okay for them? Why is it not okay for these players? Will Jay Moynihan go to each and every one of those CEOs of the, of the 23 uh, companies that are investing into Saudi Arabia and suspend them and ban them? The hypocrisy in all this, it's so loud, it's deafening. So how do you feel about that uh, answer back to Jay Monahan? Yeah. No, I mean, I think Greg has a, 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 an argument. And you could even go another sport. You could say the NBA working with China and all that happens with the Uyghurs in China. And yet the NBA is still operating with, with that country and its human rights abuses. Um, and you have the president of the United States going over to meet with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, which in and of itself is something uh, significant. I, I think when you go down that road with sports and human rights, um, you have to – Make your choice. And uh, what Greg is pushing back with is legitimate. Uh, I just think that the the tour is pushing back hard and saying, you know, this is the place where Jack and Arnie and Tiger and and others, um, you know, made this tour what it is. 
uh, and gave these guys the original chance, and they feel like they're getting abandoned by some of these players who are leaving for the money. Uh, Maybe the money will be there for a long time, but um, I don't know if it will be. Yeah, we'll have to see. I know the support you you care about. When's the next program you're playing in? Uh, I am playing in a celebrity uh, tournament, the Lake Tahoe tournament out in um, at uh, second week in July, and um, so I'm working on the game to try to see if I can have NBC put me on the front of the leaderboard. Right. How would that feel? Well, I mean, it would feel great. I would love to. <laughs> have, uh, I would love to have. You know, Peter Jacobson talking about the Fox guy. Right, and being Brett Bear. Hey, Brett, uh, thanks so much. Who you have? have you named your panel tonight? Uh, Morgan Ortegas, Howie Kurtz, and uh, I think Amy Walter. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, energy. Uh, you know, Germany is refiring these coal plants. Yes. Uh, it, I mean, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, and, you know, in the wake of, of the president going over to Saudi Arabia, energy and where the world energy situation is is going to be a focus. Yep, uh, we are. And, of course, the administration was trying to tell everyone the refineries are the problem, the oil companies are the issues, and they answered back. All right, Brett, we're going to make sure to, uh, to watch you. Brett Baer, thanks so much. We'll see you. You got it. one 408 I'll find out when we come back if there's indeed more to know. And then uh, maybe even squeeze in some of your calls. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. So to me, if golf is good for the world, golf is good for Saudi. And uh, so you're seeing that growth internally there. It's, it's extremely impressive. So, no, it did not. And uh, when, you, when you look at the PIF and, and what they've done with other direct and indirect investments around the world, well, I, I would imagine there's a lot of consumers out there and people watching the show who have been the benefactors of uh, those investments. That is Greg Norman with me on One Nation on Saturday night at 8 o'clock. It was nice for him to wait, give me the first uh, television interview. It's created a lot of news and information, and I think it pushed back on the PGA, who's got the American audience at their fingertips, U.S. Open, everyone watching. It's got the rich history. Greg Norman, part of that history, but it looks like they're looking to blow it up because he's coming at him. I mean, it just reminds me of the NFL going for the jugular against the WFL or USFL. The NBA was the 70s. They went after the ABA. They ended up merging the WHA, Bobby Hull, uh, Bobby Hull at the time, uh, Gordy Howe went over there. They they took on the NHL. They ended up merging. That's how he got the Edmonton Oilers and some other uh, teams that I can't remember right now. But to me, that's it. I mean, that's what they're going for. But I think to bring up the 9-11 families and everything, knowing that the President of the United States is going there in two weeks, knowing that we've allied with them well, along with Israel against Iran – I mean, uh, we used them as a wedge to win the Cold War. So I know they're not, they're hardly perfect because Shogi was a brutal murder. I get it. Uh, but don't act don't act like you can't hear me when I say that China's out of control too. But yet we're doing a ton of business there. We're wearing Nikes. And Nike says they consider themselves a Chinese company. You're using an Apple phone? Apple that doesn't make a thing over here. Almost nothing over here. So I think just people doing an easy target. Greg Norman likes to live on the edge. He already tried to start a world league. It didn't work. Let's find out if there's more to know. More to know. 
Well, the Warriors are the team of destiny. Scientists at Monash University say jet lag put the Boston Celtics at a distinct advantage during home games in this year's NBA Finals. You know, they beat the Celtics in six. The authors posted that the NBA and other leagues should account for jet lag whenever a pro team must travel long distances. Uh, eastward travel where the destination time is later than the original requires the athlete to shorten their day. During phase advance, athletes often struggle to fall asleep at an earlier bedtime. To research, the top researchers analyzed all this 11,481 NBA games, played over 10 seasons. So it is a harder to for the Celtics to have won. But when when the Celtics were dominated the Lakers? Yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll, and that Jerry was, West that was won one country. championship? Was it still 3,000 miles back then? Yeah, they, we, we haven't expanded the uh, geographical uh, size of the U.S. So my question is, wouldn't it be worse for sports like baseball? Because they don't they have only one travel day when it com- usually when it comes to, say, yeah. the World well, Series. Do, where the I NBA could be that. off for three or four days. Next, the World Swimming Governing Bodies effectively banned transgender women from competing in women's events. Maybe set up a third category for them. I give the FINA, which is the World Swimming Body, President uh, uh, credit. He says we have to protect the rights of the athletes to compete. We also have to protect competitive fairness at our events, especially the women's category at FINA competitions. So if you want to transition and do it by 12, you can swim against women. But if not, you got to be fair. And to go on to the same theme in terms of politics, Hillary Clinton, of all people, told Democrats to stop pushing on, in, on, on issues like this because we're standing at the precipice of losing our democracy and everything that everybody cares about. Uh, the most important thing is to win the next election. Essentially saying this is not the next election. Losing a democracy? Really? You want to lose democracy? You continue to, to give our foreign policy to Joe Biden and our energy policy to the Middle East. Next. Congratulations to the producers of Maverick. It's nearing the $1 billion mark after a strong Father's Day weekend. It's made another $44 million. Uh, it's off 20%, but still it's so impressive. $52 million over the Juneteenth holiday frame. So congratulations. I hear it's great. I want to watch it at some point. So far, it's got $473 million in 25 days. That's pretty impressive. Anyone seen it? You see it? No, I haven't. Did you like the first one? I don't even remember the first one. <laughs> Probably had a game. Next, Arch Manning, the latest the latest generation to lead the next generation of Mannings, officially visits the Texas Longhorns. He's supposed to be phenomenal. From what I could see on his highlights, he looks great. He's got he's six four, two fifteen. He's Cooper's son. Uh, the growth potential uh, is tremendous. They say he looks to add an additional ten to fifteen pounds to his frame in the next level. He displays above average athleticism. Evidently, he's extremely elusive. Likes to run. Adequate mobility as a runner, increasing his rushing totals every season over the last three years. Remember, his dad could run. Peyton couldn't. I thought Eli ran in college, but he almost ran it or never ran with the, with the Giants, but always stayed healthy. Both those guys are remarkably healthy until the end of their careers. It's just a shame the way the Eli Manning streak of uh, consecutive starts ended in New York for a backup right. that was never had a shot at uh, a future job. Next. A new study reveals most fun states in America are number one, California, number two, Florida, number three, Nevada, number four, New York, number five, Illinois. Look at them, though. The taxes are extremely high in four of those five states, uh, Louisiana, uh, Minnesota and Texas and Washington, Colorado, number six, round out the bottom to top ten. All right. I'll keep that in mind next time I have to plan a trip. What's a fun state that you visited? That you, if you would have list, if somebody asked you, what's the most fun state you visited? I don't know. I can't really. It depends on what city in that state. So that's too hard a question, uh, Pete. Next, 
A daily glass of beer could make you uh, your gut healthier. Researchers at Nova University in Lisbon, there's one in Florida, but that's not it, report that beer boosts health bacteria that fend off diseases and infections. The benefits come from polyphenines. It's a plant compound found in hops, barley, and yeast. It's worth noting that the double-blind study wasn't conducted with a large, diverse sample crowd. There were just 19 participants, and all were men between 23 and 58. But the main takeaway in those who drank beer... One alcohol, uh, either one alcoholic or non-alcoholic, was shown to have a more diverse microbe. You can't have a study with 19 people. I'm accepting this. Normally, I would say <laughs> I want thousands of people. This is more. You know, if they had five people, I would accept that too. That, that is crazy. And finally, a cup of coffee before shopping may lead you to spend more money. Scientists uh, did a uh, shopping study. They, they took uh, comp- they took uh, shoppers that sip a complimentary cup of coffee before shopping. Ended up with 50% more money and buying 30% more items than their non-caffeinated counterparts. So they're shopping smarter as well. Sure enough, the people who drank caffeinated coffee purchased a significantly higher number of items and spent more money. Interestingly, drinking caffeine also appears to influence the types of items people buy. Shoppers who drank caffeine bought more non-essential items like candles, which nobody needs, and fragrances, unless you're a colonist. Uh, study author also conducted a fourth experiment on the lab testing the impact of caffeine on online shopping. Uh, we're not sure how that went. The, each person had to pick up which, which items they would buy from a list of 66. Again, people who drank caffeine chose more impulsive items like a massager. No proof yet that you need a massager, but it does make your life better. Just make sure, you know what, better to drink beer because you're not going to be impulse buying when you drink beer. Good move. Uh, listen, thanks so much for listening, everybody. I'm keeping it here on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't forget, BrianKilmeadeShow.com is where you can get the podcast. Download from wherever you like to get podcasts from and be part of the, the mania who likes to listen. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.